Good morning, church. Good morning to everybody watching online. And I want us to say a special hello to any new friends, new guests this morning. Um, if we haven't met personally, my name is Greg, and one of the pastors here, and I get to bring us through 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to 2 Timothy 3, as we've been in the series called A Fight Worth Fighting. A Fight Worth Fighting. And if maybe we are getting to know each other a little bit, you're going to learn uh, sooner or later that one of the things I love in life is mountain biking. I love mountain biking. I go about every week, and there's this one particular trail that, that we ride often. We, we've done it many, many, many times, and I'm very familiar with the trail, and it's always fun, always enjoyable. We've never had any crashes, no close calls, no disastrous incidents, but recently... We were going down this trail, and I decided to record it. And so I held, uh, I had a GoPro camera strapped to my chest, and so we recorded the ride. And then when I went home to review the footage, I saw something in the footage that creeped me out, something I had never seen before. See, when I watched this footage, I noticed that along the trail, all along the way, there are these cliff exposures, these drops hundreds of feet into the canyon that I never knew were there. So I'm wondering, how in the world have I ridden this trail so many times and I've never been locked up in fear as one would be if they saw this? It's such a fear that could cause a person to not want to hike it or not want to bike it. How come I've never seen that before? And why, why is it that when this footage was taken that I, I didn't even think about it, I didn't, I didn't see it, but I was able to enjoy the entire trail and make it through? And as I thought about it, I realized there's, there's two things that kept me on that trail and kept me from going astray, going off course, or falling over the edge. Two things. I had the guy in front of me that I kept my eyes focused on, and I had the trail beneath me that I kept on the whole time. I, I made sure I kept my eyes on the guy in front of me and on the trail beneath me. I share that metaphor because as we get into 2 Timothy Timothy 3, Paul says, listen, he speaks to Timothy, this young pastor, he says, there's going to be all sorts of dangers around you. There's going to be false teachers with false doctrines. There's going to be persecution of Christians. There's going to be godlessness in the last days. That's what we studied in the passage before this. But he says, Timothy, you have at least two things, the guy in front of you and the path beneath you. In other words, you had the guy in front of you. That's me, Paul. I'm, I'm the one who has been setting an example, leading the way for you, and you have the path beneath you. What's the path beneath him? This is the path. This is the way. Sorry, Mandalorian friends, but this is the way. So let, let's look into this. Um, let me pray and ask the Lord to open our eyes and our hearts to what the scriptures say this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our eyes to see spiritual truths that only your spirit could reveal to us. No man, no message without your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we pray that you would speak this morning. Show us, Lord, what we have to help us to keep from going astray and off course. God, I pray that we would walk in these ways. God, I pray that this morning as I deliver your word, Lord, that I would be able to speak beyond my means. 
Lord, I pray that nothing I say this morning would be remembered, nothing I say would be kept in our minds, nothing I say would be repeated unless it's true, and it's from you, your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, that's, that's who we want to hear from. We want to hear from you, no one else. So speak to us, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. And so those are the two things Paul says to Timothy that you have. And so I want to break the passage up into two parts. I'll read the first part, show you the first thing, then the second part, show you the second thing. So the first part is this, Timothy has his mentor as an example. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down as the first part of today's message. Timothy has his mentor as an example. Just like it profits me to keep my eyes on my buddy, that in this case his name is Johnny, uh, I keep my eyes in, uh, on him as I'm riding this trail, Paul is the guy that Timothy has to keep his eyes on. And Paul gives a list of things that he can look to as his an example, as his example. And so we start from verse 10 and we'll read through 13, but it says this, he says, Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. And we'll pause right there. And so he gives a whole list of things that that Timothy has to look to as an example. And I know it's a long list, and we could get lost in that list, but I color coordinated it because I see that we could actually categorize this list into three categories. How do we categorize this? Well, I see his ministry in the blue. I see his character in the green. And I see his persecutions, his suffering in the yellow. So let me break that down a little bit. Let's start by looking at his ministry. Paul's ministry is an example to Timothy. And that includes the first three things in that list, which includes his teaching, his conduct, and his aim in life. So what, what, is, what is his teaching? What's his teaching been all about? If you look at the teaching of Paul, it's always been about Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, when I came to you and I taught the word, I came resolving to know nothing more than Christ and him crucified. That's it. Jesus Christ, he lived and he died. And then he says, my conduct, how, how, how did I conduct myself as I resolved to teach about Christ? Well, he tried to conduct himself like Christ would. I tried to be Christ-like when I taught you about Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, look, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And then what's his aim in life? What is his sole purpose? What is his highest priority? Christ. Remember, remember Philippians 1 verse 21, what does he say? He says, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain, right? To gain what? Christ. His presence, his promises. And so Paul, look at my ministry. It's always been about Jesus. Jesus is at the center of it all. And so Paul has a ministry that, that Paul, that Timothy can look to as his example. I'm so thankful that for near, nearly 11 years now that I've been at this church, that I've had Pastor Gary's leadership as an example for me to follow. That 
as I step into his shoes that I don't have to wonder, how in the world are you supposed to lead a church? I don't have to scramble trying to figure out how to do it as if I've never seen it before. For 11 years now, I've been able to watch Pastor Gary as my mentor to see how he leads the church. By watching Pastor Gary and seeing example, I've learned how to think beyond my own means. How do I think in a way that's larger than myself so that I have to depend on God? And how do I help people to see and think in ways that they don't think is possible? I've seen in Pastor Gary the heart to think about how do we reach one more for Jesus? How do we reach the lost? It's not okay that a soul perishes without ever hearing about Christ. So how do we reach one more? I've seen in Pastor Gary's leadership the importance, the value of personal touch. How in a church that's growing with more and more people, the value of making sure each person is seen and known, how that is so important. I've seen in Pastor Gary the value of hearing criticism and not shunning it or defending yourself all the time, but how do you receive criticism, filter out what, what we need to lay aside and what we really need to take to heart. And I thank God that as I step into this new role that I don't have to try to figure out things on my own. In large part, I have Pastor Gary's ministry that has gone before me that I can look to. How, do, how would he make this decision? How would he lead? How does he love? How does he pray? I know that I have his example to look forward to. And I want to ask you, do you have a mentor? Someone who has gone before you that you can look to? particularly in the, in the area of serving the Lord, do you have someone that you could look to? Paul has Timothy. Timothy has Paul as his example. But then he goes on, and not only does Timothy have Paul's ministry, he has Paul's character. So the next four things in the list are character traits. It includes my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Now, let's be honest, Paul was probably filled with flaws. He wasn't perfect. He called himself the chief of sinners. I'm the sinner of sinners before he found Christ. And it's not like he became perfect overnight. In Acts chapter 15, we see that he was probably a little bit stubborn in his argument with Barnabas. We see in Galatians 2, maybe he crossed the line. Maybe it's arguable when he, when he rebuked Peter maybe humiliating Peter in front of everybody without going to him first privately. He did it publicly. And so maybe there are things that Paul didn't do right all the time, but, but Timothy, here are some things that, that I hope I demonstrated to you. I was full of faith. I was often patient. I was driven by love, and I was steadfast in my commitment. Take these things, Timothy. You know, my, my friends in high school, uh, I went to West High here in Torrance. They weren't the greatest influence that I could have. In fact, they probably provided the worst influence available for me. I mean, I had these normal group of high school friends who did all the things that many high schoolers would do. They, they drank, they smoked, they smoked out, they partied, they slept with their girlfriends, they slept around. They did all the things that I should not do as a Christ follower. And I'm sure my mom and my dad knew that these were my friends. Mom or dad, are you here, by the way? <laughs> I think they're at the next service. But anyways, I'm sure they knew. I'm sure they knew. And yet, here's what's interesting. They never told me to find new friends, get rid of these friends. They never said that to me. 
I'm sure they would have loved to, but they probably realized I wasn't going to. But here's what my dad said, and I'll never forget this. He said this over and over again. He says, Greg, always take the good things from your friends and leave the bad things behind. He would always tell me that, tell me that. Leave, take, take the good things that they have to offer. Make that your own, but the bad things, just leave that behind. And I love that because what he was saying, he recognized that in every earthly relationship we have in this world, there will be people in your life where you will have good things that you could gain from them. And there will also be not so good things that you should probably leave behind. Right? You might have a really good boss, a really good employer who's very smart, very savvy, very strategic, but can sometimes be very sneaky or very selfish. Leave that behind. Maybe you have an, a, 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 a professor who's just really nice and really kind and easy to love, and you love that about your professor, but at times could be too lenient when it comes to deadlines or to assignments. Maybe you have a life group leader who's really smart, really knowledgeable, really good with the word of God, but at times can maybe talk too much and talk over people. So we, we, we have good things we ought to hold on to and not so good things we should leave behind. Paul probably wasn't per- perfect, but there are some things that really characterized his ministry that were from the Lord, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness. Timothy, follow my example. Follow my example. And Timothy probably got to see how these characteristic traits of Paul helped contribute to the success of his ministry. And so Timothy got to see Paul's ministry. He got to see Paul's character. And finally, we get to verse 11. Paul says, you also have my sufferings as an example. And he mentions in verse 11, he says, you saw my persecutions in Antioch, in Iconium, and Lystra. And if you study the book of Acts, that was on Paul's first missionary journey. And these were all cities that he had gone to preach the gospel. They were all pagan cities in the region of Galatia. And he was persecuted in each one for preaching the gospel. And Lystra, interestingly, that is the city that we know that Timothy grew up in. Timothy grew up in Lystra. That's where Timothy found Christ. And scholars believe that it's very likely that Timothy was there to witness Paul getting persecuted. The book of Acts says it was in Lystra that Paul was pelted with stones. He was stoned and left for dead on the road. They thought he was dead because he was motionless on the ground in Lystra. Timothy probably saw that. And it's like Paul saying, you've seen me get persecuted for preaching the gospel. And yet, Timothy, you've seen how I've endured and how God has delivered every time. And so Paul, Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, this, you know this could very likely happen to you. This could very likely happen to you, but you've seen me endure, and you've seen God deliver. He goes on in verse 12. He says, indeed, Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I think, I think we've got to stop and take this in a bit. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, what does that mean? Because does, does that mean that's going to happen to me? Is that going to happen to you? Because when I think about persecution, I think about being killed, skinned alive, put to the fire, beheaded, 
I think about legal lawsuits. I think about being faced with bond threats and death threats, being arrested and locked up. Now, will these persecutions really happen to us if we pursue a godly life? How many of you have experienced any of those things? Well, I realize that persecution can fall across an entire spectrum of things. And, and those things I just mentioned, which are in my head when I think about persecution, is probably more on the extreme side. But let's try to understand what persecution means. That word that Paul uses for persecution comes from a word that means to pursue someone, to press them, to chase them down in the sense that you want to get rid of them, to shut them up or get rid of them because you don't like who they are or what they represent. And so if I don't like you and, and I don't like what you're teaching or what you're representing or how you look, I might try to do something to intimidate you. And that could range from physical violence to verbal abuse, from social cancellation to legal lawsuits, and everything in between, anything to intimidate you, to get you to be quiet or to get you out of here. And so that's what Paul means, that we will be persecuted if we desire to live a godly life. Now, with that in mind, let me ask you, how many of you in this room or you listening have ever felt truly persecuted because you've been trying to live a godly life? Are you experiencing any kind of persecution? And if you haven't, we should ask, why not? Why, why are some of us in this room not experiencing any kind of persecution? I can think of two probable reasons. Number one, you're really blessed. You're really blessed. God has protected you. He has spared you from persecution, even though you're pursuing godliness. Praise the Lord. Number two, probable reason is that your godliness isn't very apparent. Maybe no one needs to bother you because the God inside of you isn't really seen. See, just because you have faith, this passage isn't saying that just because you have faith, you will be persecuted. It's saying those who pursue a godly life will be persecuted. Those who desire that the God that you put your faith in is being seen to a world that's growing godless. And when there is a godless world that's growing even more godless all around us, the more you pursue godliness, the more tension you should be experiencing. And I, I think about my life, to be honest, I haven't experienced a whole lot of persecution. And I have to ask myself why. And I truly believe, believe in a large part, God has protected me. Here at this church, our pastors, we haven't received a whole lot of criticism. He's been very gracious to us. But I've noticed the times I have gotten negative comments, the times I have gotten criticism, usually I, I've noticed a pattern. There are often the times when I've opened up the word of God and I've taught what it says in light of the world's social, social issues. It's always whenever I'm taking a stand on what the word of God says in light of what the world and the culture is doing. I challenge you, think of any social issue in our world today, whether it's gender roles, homosexuality, violence, abortion, right? Take any social issue, open the word, and take a stance on what the word says, and somebody will say something to act against you. I promise you, try it. 
You do it enough, you will feel opposition. Sometimes it's going to come from people inside the church, and sometimes it will come from people outside the church. But as long as you're saying what the Word of God says, someone is going to have an issue with it. And so Paul's saying, those who pursue to live a godly life, you can expect to be persecuted. And so for any of us listening here, if you haven't experienced persecution, maybe you're blessed. Maybe you're really blessed. But then again, maybe you're silent. Maybe you're silent. And, and Timothy, Paul's saying, Timothy, you cannot be silent. You cannot be quiet. Pursue godliness. Make your God known in a growing godless world. You have to make your God known. You've seen how I've endured and how God has delivered. Do not be afraid. And so Timothy has this example before him. The guy before him has led in his example through his ministry, through his character, and through his experiences of suffering. I want to encourage everyone here to find someone to follow. Particularly someone who's of the faith. Find someone in the faith to follow. Whatever path you're on, whatever career path, maybe it's a relationship path, maybe it's a marriage decision, maybe it's ministry, whatever path you're on, find someone of the faith to follow. Uh, for, for 11 years, like I've said, I've had Pastor Gary as a pastor to follow. Monica and I, we've been married for 14 years now. And in the past few years, we've asked an older couple in this church to be our mentoring couple. And so we'll meet with them. This past Monday, we got to do brunch with them. We were in their house, and they were pouring into us as a mentor couple. Find someone to follow. I love that here at this church, the, the women's ministry, we have a ministry called One Another that is specifically a, a, a discipleship ministry. So if you go online, you could find this on our website, the One Another Ministry, and you could, you could fill in your name and fill out the form, and they'll connect you with somebody in the church, an older woman in the faith, who will walk with you and go through a study with you. I love that the men's ministry, we have uh, a group of men. Carlton is taking a few guys to develop a mentoring program for the men where you can sign up and we'll, we'll, we'll get you an older guy in the faith to walk with you through the book of John. We need this. We all need someone to follow. Someone who's older than us or more mature than us or have walked the road before us in the faith. Timothy had his mentor as an example to follow to keep him from going astray, going off course. But you know what else Timothy had? Timothy had God's word. And so here's the second thing as we get into the second part of this passage. Write this down if you're taking notes. Timothy has God's word as his path. He had his mentor as an example, but he has also God's word as his path, the path beneath him. So let's read verses 14, and I'll take you through 17. It says this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred, sacred writings, which refers to the Tanakh, which is the Jewish Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, including the New Testament, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness 
We'll pause right there. So, so Timothy, this is the path beneath you. This is the path to follow. This is the path to stand on and to stay on. You have this. Don't go off course. Now, why, why is this the path? Why is this the way? Well, because according to verse 16, it is the inspired word of God. This is the inspired word of God. That word he uses is one word in the original language is the word theonoustos. Takes two words, puts them together, theonoustos. It means God breathed. Every breath that God breathes comes from the mouth of God. And so why is this the way, why is this the path? Because it's the inspired word of the creator of the universe, the sovereign king who holds it in his hands, the author of life. These are his words. That even though it was written by men across generations, different men in different generations, in different settings, from different backgrounds, were all speaking the same truth and the same words from the same God. And so these are the true and authoritative words of life. And if God is the highest power in all creation, then his word should have highest authority in all our lives, in everything. And so how shall we live? Not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God breathed inspired scripture. Therefore, If this comes from the highest authority, then it has authority in all things. It's beneficial, profitable for all things in life, including, Paul says, teaching, reproof, which means to rebuke, correcting, and training in righteousness. What does all that mean? I'll break it down like this. Let me put up a slide. This is how I'd break it down. Teaching is revealing the right path, showing you what the right path is. Reproof or rebuke is calling out Calling one out when they've gone off path. Hey, you're going off path. Correcting is calling them back to the right path. And training in righteousness is how do I keep on walking on this path? So let me break that down a little bit further. How is it that the word of God is really useful for all these things in life? Well, let's talk about how the word is useful for teaching. It's useful for teaching. Imagine with me a scenario, okay? Imagine you're sitting at a coffee shop and you're with a friend and your friend comes to you with a problem. He says, man, I have, I have this, this couple friend and they're on the brink of divorce. And the husband and the wife are always opposed to each other and they're always on different sides of the conversation, different sides of the room and they're thinking about divorce. How should I advise them? Now think about your answer. How would you advise him? How would you advise your friend to speak into that relationship? Seriously, think, well, what's your answer? If it were me, naturally, I might think, well, is there a way they can negotiate and compromise? Is there a way they can both meet their needs? Or uh, maybe they could get a third party to, to listen to the conversation and speak into them, a counselor maybe. Or maybe they could take a family vote, get the kids involved, and, and, and the winner gets their way. And, and I would start thinking about well, what's the best way to go about this? What do I think of off the top of my head or, or from my own experiences, what can I draw from to give the best answer? And that's what we normally do. But I want to ask you, how often in a situation like that do you stop to ask yourself, well, what does the word of God say? Have we ever stopped to see that this really is helpful and beneficial, useful for teaching? 
And so I was actually asked that question this week. That was a real scenario. And in light of preparing this message, instead of giving my first natural thought that came to my mind, I thought, okay, what does the word of God say? And so I told this friend in front of me, I said, well, you know, I know that, that uh, Luke 9.23 says that every day we should deny ourselves, we should pick up our cross and follow Jesus. In other words, every day I have to deny myself and follow Christ in submission and obedience to Christ. Okay, but what does that have to do with a marriage situation? Well, we're talking about submission to Christ. That's what Luke 9 says in Ephesians 5. It says, husbands and wives submit to one another out of submission to Christ. So therefore, husbands, lay down your life for your wife as Christ did the church. And wives, love your husbands out of submission to Christ. And if we're both learning to die to ourselves and give up our own rights because I follow Christ, then that will solve many of our marital issues. And so I bring up that example because how often do we, are we asked for input or advice or counsel? And the first thing we're doing is thinking about what do I, what do I come up with right now? What feels right? What experiences have I gone through that can help in this situation rather than what does the word of God say and I want to challenge church I want to challenge you to to stop and really think about the word of God see that it's useful for teaching and realize that I need to stop leaning on my own understanding but in all my ways acknowledge God acknowledge his word and he will make paths straight And so Timothy was a teacher of God's word. That was his job. That was his role. His job is to teach and show people the path. He was a teacher and a preacher. And that's why Paul kept saying, Timothy, that's why you got to keep on reading the word publicly. Don't stop publicly reading the word. Don't stop teaching. Don't stop preaching. Because it's useful. It's beneficial. And yet many of us will say, well, that's Timothy. He was a teacher and preacher. That's what he does. I'll never be up here on stage behind a pulpit preaching the word. And yet I want to say, no, no, we're all people who will be found in teachable moments. Parents, there will be a day when your kid takes a toy or is yelling at your other kid, at their sibling. That's a teachable moment. Employees, your coworker will come angry at your boss and they'll ask you for advice on how to approach your boss and what, you should say to, what he should say to them. Young adults, you might see your friend going about a relationship, seeking a relationship in all the wrong ways. Those are all teachable moments. And so how can you look to the word of God? I want to ask you, where do you draw your solutions from? Where do you generate your answers from? And I pray that we would be people who stop leaning on our own understanding and in all our ways acknowledge God, acknowledge him and his word, and trust that he will make your path straight. I used to tell people all the time, I used to teach, hey guys, you've got to memorize the word of God, hide the word of God in your heart. And I used to use an example, I said, because when you're at the mall and you're being tempted, it's not like you have a Bible in your back pocket that you could just pull out and just start fighting off the devil. You don't have a Bible in your back pocket, so memorize the word of God. And I realized, man, I can't say that anymore. I realized we're in a new day, we're in such a unique time in history where, no, actually, we actually can whip the Bible out of our back pocket. Like we all had the Bible in our back pocket. And I would still say, hey, still memorize the word of God. Hide it in your heart. But know that you don't have to be weaponless 
anywhere you go. You can stop in a conversation and say, hold on, give me a, a minute. Because I think the word says something about that. And see what the word of God says. Now, a little disclaimer, we do have to be sure and careful that we handle the word accurately. And not pull passages out of context. So one thing we'll be doing at this church, we'll be having some Bible interpretation workshops, some seminars to help us know how to interpret the Bible correctly, okay? But the word of God is useful for teaching. And we go on to verse 16. And he says, the word of God is useful for rebuking and correcting. It's useful for rebuking and correcting. Now, show of hands, okay? Participate with me. How many people believe that the Bible says, you shall not judge. Do not judge. Raise your hand if you think the Bible says that. Okay. You're right. It says that. You don't have to be shy. It says that. How many people think the Bible says, no, you should judge? Raise your hand if you think the Bible says, you should judge. You're right. You're right. It says, do not judge, and it says, you shall judge. Now, how is it saying both things? Isn't that contradictory? Well, no, not if you understand the full counsel of Scripture and what it means in different contexts. What does it mean to judge? We think judging is such a bad word, but judging is simply holding people to a set of standards. That's what it is. And as Christians, if we're to judge, what's our standard? What are our sets? What's our set of standards? Well, it's this, the word of God. These are the standards that God has given us. And so if I'm on this path and you are on this path, I can only judge you and I should judge you according to this standard. I should judge you according to this standard if you claim to subscribe to the same word of God. But if there's anybody else, if the rest of the world hasn't come to walk this path, I can't judge them. On many things, I cannot judge them according to these standards if they haven't subscribed to these standards, if they haven't surrendered to the God of this word. For example, if you have a Buddhist cousin who's a Buddhist and they have a, a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend and they're sleeping together, you can't judge them and say, hey, you can't do that because God says we have to keep the marriage bed pure. They'll be like, why do I care what that says? If I have an atheist neighbor who's not tithing to, to church, I can't be like, hey, you're not trusting God with your finances. You got to tithe and trust God. Why would I say that to him when he doesn't even believe in God? I can't judge him according to this. My priority with them is to first get them on the right path. And so 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12, this is not my idea. It says this about judging. It says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Talking about outsiders of the church. That's not my job. God will judge them. I'm not supposed to judge outsiders. But then he goes on. But is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? For those who do subscribe to the word of God, who do surrender their hearts to God, we have the responsibility. We have the obligation to hold each other to God's standards if we claim to walk on this path. And so the word of God is going to be useful for judging. And I know we hate that word. It has such a negative connotation, but not when you understand that judging in the Christian context is to be done out of love. And a couple ways we could do that is through rebuking and correcting. 
rebuking and correcting. And yet when we rebuke and correct, it has to be done not out of condemnation, church, but in compassion. Not harshly, but gently. So we judge with love. Galatians 6.1, it says this. It says, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in transgression, caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Brothers and sisters, that means this is family talk. This is family business here. If a brother or sister inside the church is living in a sin, you who are spiritual, meaning you who are walking in the spirit, if a brother or sister is straying and not walking in spirit, restore them in gentleness. Judge them gently and bring them back to the standards of God. If you and I believe that these are the words of life, then listen, you need me and I need you. You need me and I need you. I need you to call me out and correct me. If I'm going on a path, call me out and then correct me. Call me back to the right path. If you Listen, if you ever see me disrespecting my wife, if you ever see me talking down on her, excusing her needs just to serve mine, I need you to call me out on that. Call me out on that. Call me back and don't just tell me not what to do, but maybe turn me to 1 Peter 3. Say, Greg, remember you taught this. Husbands should treat their wives in a considerate, in, a, in an understanding way. That's what God says. I need you to call me out and call me back. If I see you on the court and you're hot-headed because someone fouled you and you're turning red, you're cussing up a storm, you're cussing the guy out, trying to start a fight, I'm calling you out on that. I'm going to call you out, but, but it's weak if all I say to you is, hey, bro, don't be mad. Don't cuss, man. That's bad. That's weak. Because why should I expect you to submit to my words? Rather, submit to God's word. Remember Ephesians 4? It says, in your anger, do not sin. God said that. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth except what is helpful or beneficial for building others up according to their needs. Not me. That's God, that's God telling you that. And so I need you and you need me. Let's call each other out. And let's call each other back to the right path. That's rebuking and correcting. But we judge in love. Amen? Amen. Last thing. The last thing we'll talk about here is the word of God is useful for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. There are going to be Christians who are going to boast about how much they love the word of God, how much they read the word of God and know the word of God. There will be churches who, who will almost arrogantly boast about, we hold to this theology and we only teach in this way. This is the only way to preach the word of God. And they'll boast about how how much of a Bible church they are. And yet some of those churches will do very little to actually apply it in their lives, to actually live it out in their community, to make it known to a world that is perishing without Christ. Church, let us never be that church. Let us not be known as that church. I pray that we would be a Bible church, but I pray that we don't only just sit there and teach it and learn it, but that we would train in righteousness. That we would train in righteousness. Without training in righteousness, disciplining ourselves to live these things out, teaching is futile and preaching is pointless. 
And so we have to train in these things that we learn. Francis Chan, years ago, he gave this great illustration. I'm going to take it and tweak it and personalize it a bit. But imagine that I go on a, on a trip. I go on a trip and I forgot, oh my gosh, it was trash day. It's trash day. And I forgot to take out the trash. So I text my daughter, my oldest daughter, Karis. I say, hey, Karis, please help daddy take out the trash. Right? And, and so I tell her, please, I expect her to do it. And then a couple days later, I return home from my trip. And I walk through the front door, and my daughter, Karis, is ready to greet me. She's like, Dad, welcome home. And she says, Dad, I, I got your text. So good. Dad, I, I, I got it, and I, and I read it twice. I read it twice, too. It's so good. And in fact, that night, I got together with my brother and sister, Evan and Aranea. We got together in my room, and for an hour, we just went through what you said and, and just really tried to understand it. What does he mean by this? Like, what, is, what does he really mean? And we, we figured out, Dad, we, we see your heart. You don't like filth. You don't like full trash cans. Father, you're so pure. And Dad, you're going to love this, Dad. We memorized it. <laughs> you, said, you said, test me. Karis, please take out the trash. Did I get it? Did I get it? And, and they could go on and on and Dad, I looked it up. I know how to say trash in Greek. <laughs> Skubalon. That's the Greek word for trash. And she could go on and on and on about this text I sent. And what am I going to say as her father? But did you take out the trash? <laughs> like, did you take it out? I don't care how well you know it and how much you've read it. Did you do what I asked you to do? That's what I want to see. And we end this passage in verse 17. What is so important to God? All these things, this is useful for what? That the man of God, in verse 17, the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God wants to see us work it out. He wants us to work it out. He wants us to train in righteousness. And sometimes as Christians, we can make such an effort to make sure we're different from all the other world religions because all those religions are about good works. We're different. We're about good grace. We're about the good news. Saved by grace and grace alone. And amen to that. Let's make it very clear. We are saved by grace and grace alone. Amen? Amen. amen. But with that being said, if you look at the full counsel of Scripture, you look at the full message of the gospel, it is not good news or good works. It's not good news versus good works. It is good news that we are saved by grace. And when you get that, that propels you to live out the good works. It is good works because we've experienced God's good grace. That's the Christian life. We got to work it out. And so train in righteousness. Scripture teaches us how to train in righteousness according to what Scripture teaches us. It's progressing on the path because the path has been revealed to us. Move forward in your righteousness. So Timothy, you have these examples to follow. You have the guy in front of you. You have the word of God beneath you. This is the way. Speaking of Timothy, I want to close 
maybe you've heard on Friday, Tim, Timothy Keller passed away. And Tim Keller is just a, a monster in the faith. One of the greatest preachers, Bible expositors, theologians, pastors in our day. Tim, Tim Keller passed away on Friday. And, uh, and uh, one of the things that he said, um, I'll never forget, he shared this story where, you know, he pastors this church in New York. And this, this uh, lady, one Sunday morning, came to visit his church. And she introduced herself to, to Tim Keller. And she says, you know, I come from this other church in town. And she says, the pastor at, at my church is the best preacher in town. He, he, is a, he is the most powerful communicator, very good teacher of the scriptures. You should hear him preach. And she's saying all this about her pastor, and Tim Keller's saying, well, thanks for sharing all this with me. Welcome to our church. What brings you here this morning? And, and she goes on to say, well, I've known the family of that pastor for a long time, very close friends with the pastor's family. In fact, I'm very close with the pastor's wife. And she says, I've seen how he lives at home. I've seen that that pastor is narcissistic. He's selfish. He's short-tempered, and he's verbally abusive with his wife. And his deeds don't match up with the scripture that he preaches. And so when I go to church on a Sunday morning, as I sit under his powerful preaching of the word of God, it's powerless to me. It carries no power. And I just can't do it anymore. Church, I pray out of all all the things that you could be known for, out of all the things that we have a reputation for, I pray that we would be known as people who love the word of God. That we love the word of God, but not because we love to learn it and teach it. Because we love to learn it and then live it out. Amen? Amen? That we learn it and live it. May we be that kind of church. This is the way. Would you guys join me in a word of prayer? So Father God, we bow our heads in humble adoration that you would give us your holy word and that you would give us people who have gone before us who have lived by your word and it was the best life possible. Lord, I pray that you would help us to really see and acknowledge what you have given us. You've given us people before us and the word beneath us. And I pray, Lord, that we won't have to fear the world around us as bad as it gets, as godless and dark as it gets, Lord, that we would be able to focus on the things that we have to help us to press through and endure. So God, help us to fight this fight worth fighting. Help us to live on the straight and narrow path. Help us to walk righteously. Help us not to just know it and learn it. Thank you that we could come here and just sit under the teaching of your word. But Lord, I pray that now we would go and train, that we would work it out. God, may we pursue a godly life in a world that's growing darker. And I pray that, Lord, we would stand out, that we would draw people to the love of Christ. And, And when they don't want to hear it, I pray that you would give us the strength to endure. Thank you, God. We've seen you do amazing things in our lives. We pray that we'll keep seeing you do it again and again. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.